0: Could I see a quick show of hands as we get started this morning? Uh, how many of you, take it over, how many of you are responsible for the upkeep of a yard, be it a front yard, a backyard, or any yard of sorts? Quite a few of you, okay, that's, uh, that's good to see. Now, of those of you that have raised your hands, How many of you take upon that task yourselves personally with your own lawnmower? Fewer hands, okay, but there are still some hands up. How many of you have ever had to be responsible for uh, a lawn like that and had to to use the, the, okay, yeah, there you go. So quite a few of you, quite a few of you. All right, here's the reason I ask that. I do still do this job uh, myself at our house. Uh, Yes, I engage my my kids to help out with us, and they often do. They do have jobs of their own, so uh, one of mine actually works now for Chick-fil-A, so he he doesn't uh, doesn't have all his Saturdays open, so he gets a pass from helping out in the yard on Saturdays. My other son, he, he actually mows yards in, in the neighborhood, and uh, um, we are not one of his clients because apparently we don't, <laughs> I guess we don't pay enough. <laughs> I, I actually, I kid. I kid. He often volunteers to help me out just out of the goodness of his heart and even says, uh, my only request is that you feed me. And, and I, we, we do that a lot. We give him a lot of food. But generally speaking, I, I do like cutting the grass. I don't know if for those of you that raise your hands, do you enjoy cutting the grass or any of you that actually like it? Find even a therapeutic nature to it. You get to be kind of be to yourself. Uh, and, uh, and and just kind of process things. And not only that, there, there's something about doing a, a task, starting a task and finishing a task in a relatively short amount of time uh, that you can sort of stand back and then look and say, ah, I did that. I did that. And I did that, you know, hopefully you can say I did that well, (laughs) but uh, maybe you said I did that half-hearted. But, uh, you know, at least you can stand back and say, I did, I started something and I finished it and now it's, uh, and now it's complete and it looks good too. Having said that, there is one element of cutting the grass which has given me grief for longer than I care to admit. And uh, that is through a device which is known as the weed eater. Are you familiar with this device? It's uh, It's on a pole and it has a string that spins round and wha- round and, and it whacks the weeds and and uh, and I want you to understand something. I was in college and uh, one of my first jobs was working it up for a landscaping co- company. I cut grass and I use this weed eater regularly and uh, I. I've, so I've used them for m- my entire adult life and in, in my part of my adult life, I probably had maybe six of these over the course of uh, my uh, adulthood, um, and. Uh, I often like to say, you're not really a homeowner until you've been owned by a weed eater. <laughs> uh, I say that because it seems like there's always some sort of interruption with this tool. Always. Always and inevitably. Uh, and I, th- there are so many times I can't tell you how many, I, the, uh, you know, you can, you can use it to, to chop down long weeds. You can then kind of tilt it on its side to be able to then go along the edge of your grass to get a nice, a nice straight edge. And I can't tell you how many times I've used this tool and with about six feet to go, almost done, it runs out of string. Oh, that makes me so mad. I can't tell you how many times it's happened to me. And, uh, and, and, and it, just, it just frustrates me beyond, beyond reason. Uh, in fact, there was one time not too long ago, uh, I, uh, I run out of string. So I take it back to the garage. And these things aren't easy. To, I, they've made great advancements in this area in changing the string on the weed eater. It used to be terrible, but it's still, it's not easy. You go through the chores of winding up the string and putting it all back together. And, and then you go to start it up and it just, it wasn't starting. And I, and I pulled on that thing a thousand times. And if there's one yard tool that you have in your garage that is not gonna start, it's the weed eater. For whatever reason, it's the weed eater that's not going to start. I don't know why that is, but there's something cursed about this, this instrument. And you pull and, pull and pull and pull and pull and pull. It was just running, for heaven's sake, and now it won't start. Right before I took it to the trash can, <laughs> it dawned on me, is it possible that I ran out of gas at the same time that I ran out of string? Oh. I felt like such a fool. <laughs> Because that's exactly what happened. I own a battery-powered weed eater now. <laughs> the point is, the thing needs gasoline. And, uh, and for that matter, it needs string, too. Take away one of those elements. Take away one of those elements, and it's rendered useless. And if you don't have gas or strings, you have nothing in terms of weed eating. You, you have a giant paperweight, right? Same thing with the vehicle that you drove here today. If it doesn't have fuel in it, it is nothing more than an enormous piece of metal, right? It has to have something that makes it go. So, so we're starting the series today called The Essential Truths of the Christian Faith, and, and here's what I mean by essential truths. What are the doctrines? What are the doctrines? What are the elements of Christianity that if you remove one of them, if you remove just, just one, does it render the rest of the system useless? What Do we have such beliefs? Say, yes, we do, okay? Yes, we do. I think we have several, that if you take just one thing away— the whole house collapses. And and the one thing that I wanted to start with today, in many ways, is I view as the gasoline. Okay, nothing goes without gasoline. The car you drove in, again, won't, won't move an inch without gasoline. So the first essential truth that I want to talk about is the holiness of God. And the reason I want to start with that topic is because if we don't have a basic understanding of God's holiness, if we don't understand what that is, that will have a profound impact on literally everything else that you look at in terms of theology or doctrine in the Bible. It will impact the way you look at everything else without a firm understanding of the holiness of God. So first things first. Is there someone who wants to give us a quick definition of sorts as to what I'm talking about when I refer to God's holiness? What am I talking about when I say God's holiness? Yes, Sharon. The sum total of all his attributes. The sum total of all his attributes. Okay, is there something else? What about those attributes? Any anybody else? Something else. What do we mean by the holiness of God? We have one uh, suggestion here: the the sum total of all his attributes. What else? I love this rug, by the way. This is just (laughs) holiness of God. What do we mean by holiness? Sinlessness, okay. That's a that's a good suggestion. Sinless, sinlessness. God's sinlessness, okay. Getting closer. Moving on the right track. Perfect. Perfect, okay. God is perfect, yeah. So he's so God is holy. We're saying maybe God is perfect. Are set apart. Set apart. Set apart from what? or from who? Sin. From sin. You're getting you're getting so much closer because you said perfect. You know his perfectness. Right? And you're saying set apart. Are we perfect? No. Okay. So now we're starting to get a little bit even closer. Uh, do you suppose that he is set apart from us in some measure? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the primary meaning of holiness is separate or separate, depending on which context you're using. it. it comes from ancient words that means to cut or to separate, to translate that ancient word in modern language, we might use the word or the phrase a cut apart or a cut above something. When you find something that's far and away better than anything else that you can compare it, you say it's a, it's a cut above the rest, right? So apply that description to God. God is holy, he is, he's a cut apart. He, he's, he's separate from, from us. And for the most part, I dare say that no one in here who believes in the existence of God would, would quibble with that. You know, of course, we want to think of God as, as a cut above or, or, or separate in that sense. Uh, a cut above. In fact, I think we expect that. <laughs> if we're going to talk about God, uh, we, we want God to be better than us, don't we? Isn't that, isn't that what we would want out of a deity? Uh, so we won't get into a discussion as to whether or not God is separate from us or a cut apart from us, what we want to understand is is how far separate he is from us because, because of God's separateness, believe it or not, that presents a problem for us. The fact that he is separate from us or is a cut above who we are and what we are, all right? In, uh, in Leviticus, first, first verse here, Leviticus 20, verse 7, I would love for someone to read that one. It's a short one. So if you don't like reading long passages, this is the one for you. Leviticus 20, verse 7, what do we find there? Who wants to read that and shout it out for us? Leviticus 20, verse 7, who's got it? Leviticus, uh, Todd, thank you. Go you for it. Pray yourself, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. In other words, he said, consecrate yourselves and be holy, for, for I am the Lord your God. In other words, God is saying, set yourselves apart, therefore, and be holy. This in the context he's telling Israel this. You need to be holy as I am holy. And, and this is how we can interact with each other. You need to be holy as I am holy. Okay, great. Simple enough. How do we make ourselves holy? You know, so these are the two questions that we're going to try and get at today. How do we make ourselves holy as God is holy, all right? And, and, and how far separate is God from us? If, if holiness is separateness, how far separate is he from us? And two, then how do we then be holy as he is holy? Those are the two questions that we want to try and get at today. And whenever I talk about this subject, I have to talk about the sixth chapter of Isaiah. And, and uh, I also have to mention that, that Isaiah chapter 6 is arguably amongst my, my most favorite chapters in the Bible. Most favorite. <laughs> uh, it's not a thing. Favorite is a superlative, so, so you can't have a most favorite. But I'm the teacher, and today we can have a most favorite will allow it. So my love for the sixth chapter of Isaiah is rooted in the book that I read for the first time several years ago, and that book is called The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. Does anyone, is anyone familiar with that book? How many of you have read that book? A few of you. If you haven't read that book, run, don't walk, as David says. Go, go read that book yesterday. Um, I even thought about saying, okay, welcome to class today. We're just going to read that this <laughs> chapter one and two out loud today, uh, but I'm going to give you something a little better than that, hopefully. So here we go. Chapter one. No, I'm kidding. Uh, so, so much of my understanding of, uh, of the holiness of God was crystallized upon reading that book, The Holiness of God. So, so if, if I were to provide footnotes for this talk today, it might only contain one, The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. Uh, and it's in chapter two of that book, chapter two of that book, where he teases out the sixth chapter of Isaiah. So we're going to start there today in, uh, in this discussion about God's holiness. And uh, I'll read for you Isaiah six, verses one to seven. And again, the two questions, how far separate is God from us? And how do we make ourselves separate as much as, as, uh, as God is? Okay, the text that's going to answer both those questions is that Isaiah 6, verses 1 to 7. It says this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with his tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for." Okay. So what's going on here? The passage starts out by talking about the death of King Uzziah. Believe it or not, uh, I was working on this very lesson, and I just finished taping that text. This microphone, taping that text into the body of my document here. When my son texted me, uh, in fact, it was the whole. It was a family group thread, and he simply texted to me, "The Queen just died." Right as I pasted in this this text here, now as sad as news as that is in and of itself when he broke that news to me between uh the time that i pasted that text in my document and the time that my son texted the news a fellow staff member walked into my office to ask me a co- question completely unrelated to, to anything that we're talking about here and it just so happens that this staff member was born and raised in southampton england and so he was in my office the very moment that the the news broke and i said oh my word and uh i said uh, uh my son just told me the queen died and he gasped he gasped and and then he shared with me the gravity of the moment noting that that his parents who are now gone and uh, and their parents who are now gone along with him all lived under the reign of queen elizabeth it was a significant cultural moment a nation now mourns her loss and my son was quick to point out they're gonna get like two weeks off of work there (laughs) so that is what is most important but, but this is what Israel is feeling at this point in time as we read Isaiah 6. It's a time of mourning as they just lost their monarch. And, and R.C. even says that, you know, he might have been in the top five of the kings of, of Israel. He wasn't a great king, wasn't a bad king. But uh, he, nevertheless, it was a time of mourning. Okay, But in the same year that the king dies, in the midst of the mourning, a man was called by God to serve in the sacred vocation as being a prophet. Isaiah. Okay? Now, I can make a good argument that Isaiah is the greatest prophet in the Old Testament. This is the one who, who told us that one day a virgin would conceive and bring forth a child, and his name would be called Emmanuel. It was this prophet who said the servant of the Lord would come and, and bear the sins of his people. And so, in that respect, Isaiah, you know, called in the same year that King Uzziah died. But, but aside uh, from that from, for the moment, it was in the midst of this, this national mourning. When Isaiah sees something, what does he see? It says, "Now, if you have your Bibles, uh, Isaiah six one. Someone read that again for me. Isaiah six verse one. What does it say? Isaiah six one. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Okay. Now, this is one of my favorite things to point out here in these verses, uh, uh, in one of my favorite chapters in all of the Bible. Okay, I got a lot of favorites today. Uh, For those of you that have your Bibles, how is the word Lord spelled in your Bible? If it's like when I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, how is it spelled? Capital L, -L 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 lowercase o, lowercase r, lowercase d. All right, is that's how it's spelled in your Bibles? Good. Okay, now look down in verse three. How is it spelled there? Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Have you ever noticed that distinction in your Bibles? Have you ever noticed that? Yeah. You've never have. Oh, what is your what is it? What version do you have? What version? New King James, okay, yeah. So this distinction probably would have been some of the later translations like the NIV, New American Standard, uh, ESV. So if you have those translations, you'll see that often they'll have capital L O R D, and sometimes it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Oh, it does have that there in verse 3. All capitals. What does it have in verse 1? What you said Okay, all right, so it's going back and forth, right? We've proved my point. Yes, we did it. <laughs> Okay, so again, this, uh, this distinction, I mean, it's not a misprint. The translator is trying to alert us of a, a distinct difference in the Hebrew text. Even though it's the same word in English, there are two different words being translated here. You can safely assume that whenever you see the distinction, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, does anyone know what that is? Yahweh. Yahweh, that's the sacred name of God. OK, he's, the, 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 the transcribers are alerting us to the fact that he's using the sacred name of God. It's the, the same name, uh, the Hebrew word behind is the sacred name of the Lord, the same one that was revealed to Moses in the burning bush uh, in the Midianite wilderness when God, God called out from uh, the burning bush. It, it's where the Lord says to Moses in Exodus 3, I, I've heard the affliction of my people and I want you to go to Pharaoh and, and tell them, let my people go. And Moses asks, who, who do I say? Who do I say that, uh, that uh, uh, is telling me to do this? Who are you? When they ask for me the name of the person that sent me, what do I say? And that's when he said, I am who I am, which is translated as Yahweh in the, in the Hebrew. Which now, whenever you see that in your Bibles, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. You can be assured that it's referring to that holy name of God. Now, so what does the other word mean? The capital L-O-R-D. Anyone know what that word means? Elohim. Elohim. Huh? Adonai. Adonai. It usually means, it usually refers to the word Adonai. And, and that's probably the most exalted title in the Old Testament for the uses of, of God. For example, here's another verse I need you to look up. Someone look up for me. Psalm 8. Uh, Psalm 8. And what does it say in verse 1? Psalm 8, verse 1. And tell me what you're seeing in terms of the distinctions or distinctives in the, in the capitals versus non-capitals. Psalm 8, verse 1. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Okay. O oh Lord. Set your glory above the heavens. O Lord, our Lord. Tell us about O oh Lord Our Lord. Okay. How's it spelled? Okay, in both both instances, O oh Lord, our Lord? Or is one different than the other? They're different? Yours are different? No, they are different. They're different. Okay, I was gonna say boy. There goes my whole illustration. <laughs> All right. Okay. So we have that distinction. That word would translate, "O Yahweh, our Adonai." How majestic is your name in all the earth? All right. Psalm one ten verse one. Who can do Psalm one ten verse one? Psalm one ten verse one. Same thing. What does it say? What are the first few words? The Lord says, to my Lord. "The Lord, capital O, right? Capital L, capital, all capitals. Says to my Lord." Lowercase, okay? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. This is a fantastic statement here where David is describing Yahweh, talking to someone else and, and describing to that person the title Adonai. The title that, that had always been reserved for God himself. The Lord says to my Lord. Like, that's fantastic. Now, the, the meaning of the term Adonai is uh, simply the sovereign one. So, so you see what's happening here in Isaiah. The king is dead. And uh, there's this time of uncertainty and mourning in the land, and Isaiah comes in the name of his people, and he looks and he sees this vision of the interior parts of heaven, and he sees not an earthly king, not David or, or Solomon or someone else, well, yeah, it wouldn't be, <laughs> uh, uh, or someone else, but the supreme sovereign of the enthroned one in heaven. Now, interestingly, sidebar of sorts, do you know who it is that Isaiah sees here? Who is it that Isaiah sees? Jesus. He sees Jesus. This is Jesus, okay? If you, if you go to John 12 and read through verse 41, we're, we're told Isaiah is beholding Jesus. He sees Christ in all of his glory. He sees the vision of the heavenly king whose splendorous garments billowed out over the sides of the, of the throne and spilled out completely, filling the entire building. Now, notice the other details in the account. This is, uh, I'll read verse two from Isaiah six. We're back in Isaiah six. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Now, th- there's only one reference to the scriptures uh, where these creatures are called seraphim. And that- that's right here. There only one instance in Isaiah 6. How are seraphim different from uh, what we other, have other scripture references to uh, cherubim? I don't know. I don't know what the differences are, but we can safely assume that the scripture designates a difference, that they, that they must be different in some way, for some reason. So we know little about the seraphim, but what we do know is that they're a part of the heavenly hosts here. Those beings that were specially created to fly around the courts of heaven and serve God and minister to him in the throne room. And we're told that they have six wings. And uh, R.C. points out here that in creation, we're able to see creatures survive in their natural environment. When God creates creatures, he does it with a certain creative economy. He he, he doesn't waste materials in, in, in creation. He has an extraordinary ability to create whatever he makes in such a way that it's adaptable and it's sustainable for its environment. Fish have gills uh, because their natural habitat is is the water. Birds have wings and feathers because their their environment is in in the air and they fly. By nature, the creature has pre-built in them the ability and the capacity to function in their natural environment. So we have these angels here. And their natural environment is the inner courts of, of, of heaven. It's ministering to the Lord himself. So why do these angels have six wings? We know why they have two. Two of them make them fly around the courts of heaven. Why would they have two to uh, cover their face? Any ideas? Why would, they, why would they want to cover their face? Because what? The radiant. the radiant glory of the Lord. Do we have any other references in Scripture where, well... Moses, Moses Exodus chapter 33. And what what was the conversation that was happening there? You know, in in not so many words, Moses is is telling uh, God, you know, uh, we've been through a lot together, right? (laughs) And, and, And really he's making a plea. He's making a prayer to God saying, God, I want your assurance. I want your assurance that you are going to be with us, that you're not going to leave us. And God said, I'm going to be with you. And he says, okay, as proof positive, Show me your face. And so, what does the Lord say? Okay. Yes, again, Moses. <laughs> can't do it. I can't show you my face. No one can see my face. Why? It'll kill them. Okay. Now we're starting to get a picture for the separateness of God. Just, just from that account. Just from that instance. You, you can't look at my face because it's that separate. That far removed. That far Holy, I said, to otherwise it would destroy you. So, what, do, what, does, what does Moses then resolve, or what does God resolve to do to uh, sort of, uh, you know, maybe meet Moses in the middle or appease Moses in this instance? What does he do? He does what? He can see his back. How do you see his back? back? By He hides my soul in the glass of the rock. Remember that? <laughs> Am I the one that knows that song? You <laughs> <laughs> oh, know oh, that okay. Passes by, it's like he sees the the my uh, the shadow almost. My, I had a pastor once describe it in such a way that it says it was almost like you know how when you you have a cartoon a still and someone's running, and then you have the lines going. This is the swoosh. It's just like the Lord showed the swoosh as he as he walked by, uh, and that even that was enough. Just that much alone, that much alone, uh, Moses being exposed that much to the glory of God behind a rock, the backside as he passed by. As Moses came down off the mountain, what did the people say when they saw Moses? Cover your face, Moses. Cover your face. Why? Because the refracted glory that he picked up from from the Lord just just in that much was now beaming off of his face. And the people were were scared, thinking they were seeing something otherworldly and telling him, No, no, you got to hide your face, Moses. you got to hide your face. And so then when you look at these angels in the courts of heaven shielding themselves from from the Lord, uh, you get to begin to understand even the angels of heaven are having to shield themselves from the radiant glory of the Lord. Now, again, just really quickly here, again, if they're looking at Jesus, who is the one member of the Trinity whose job it is to be the intermediary between God and man? Well, that's Jesus. Couldn't look directly at the face. Even Isaiah couldn't look directly at the face of God. So he's seeing the Lord, the Lord Jesus in his radiant glory. Uh, so it's spectacular. It's a spectacular scene that we see unfolding that, that, they, that even the angels of heaven have the good sense to cover their face in, in, uh, in the presence of the Lord. Um, so the other two wings, they cover their feet. Any idea why they would cover their feet? Why would they cover their feet? Why would angels cover their feet? Because they're dirty, <laughs> it could be. Yeah, it's a, it's a good guess. Your guess is probably as good as mine. But uh, there's a suggestion that RC is making that even you know even the the the, the angels of heaven you know there's something symbolic of the fact that this is what touches the earth. It's dirtiness or, or something along those lines. Is uh, that uh, that even the angels are showing humility and giving obeisance to God Almighty by by covering their creatureliness? You know, uh, but again, they're using two to cover their feet, two of their eyes, and two they course around. Uh, the, uh, the courts of Heaven as spectacular as all that is. The characteristics of the angels in the inner courts of, of heaven is, isn 't the most important thing going on here. More important than the anatomy of the angels is the message that it 's the message that they 're singing to one another, which is what? what 's the message that they 're singing? Holy, holy, holy. Now, I know if you 've been with me for any amount of time at all in, in these you know, classroom settings or teaching settings. Uh, what 's going on there? Why holy, holy? why do we make a big deal about holy, holy, holy in in Hebrew text in the Hebrew text, if you see repetition of something okay that's in, in, in English we do things like we rhyme in poetry or or we can use italics or bold in the Hebrew text. if you see a repeated word uh, it 's special emphasis it has special emphasis on it, even when Jesus would teach. When he would say, verily, verily, amen, amen, he's saying, amen, amen, he's placing special emphasis on whatever he's about to say. So everything that Jesus said, of course, was important, right? But when he would say, verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto you, maybe your ears perk up a little more because he's really leaned into it. Now, there's a a funny scene uh, that RCU points out that I can't uh, gloss by, but in Genesis 14... There's an account of the battle of the kings in the valley of Siddim, and it says, "Now the valley of Siddim is Genesis fourteen ten. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and as the king of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. Now, when the word bitumen pits is used here, what's actually stated in Hebrew isn't just pit or big pit. What's actually there is pit pit." <laughs> Uh, The writer says that uh, some pits are pittier than others. And this particular pit, the pit pits were particularly pity. (laughs) So you don't want to fall into a pit pit, okay? Uh, So when you see holy, but not just holy, but not even holy, holy, what are the angels saying as they call out to one another? Holy, holy, holy. Let me tell you something maybe you didn't know. Only once in all of Scripture is an attribute of God elevated to the third degree. Holy, holy, holy. Only once is a characteristic of God mentioned three times in succession. And you know he's a lot of wonderful things. That's not to to downplay any of them, but the special emphasis is placed on his separateness, his holiness, his holy, holy, holy nature. So, how far separate is he from us? When you, when you think about holiness, you can also associate it with the word perfection. When you and I talk about ourselves and our character, I, I, you know, I'd like to think that there's, there isn't a one of us that would, that would suggest that, well, oh, no, I'm not perfect, right? Uh, tell us about your character. And generally speaking, we'd say something like, well, well, I'm not perfect. It, it's not just that we're not perfect. It's much worse than that, Right? Uh, I, I had a great image that I was going to put up here if I had the TV screen but and I was going to ask you does this image give anyone anxiety it was a picture of a white rug with a wine stain <laughs> <laughs> on it does, that, does seeing that give anyone anxiety like it does me Like, oh, you know why is that why is a picture like a, a, a white rug with a red wine stain with a glass spilled over and, the, and just cast about there why does that cause anxiety in some of us because you think I'm not going to go make that, that up that could be permanent. I don't know if I'm ever gonna be able to get that out. You know, that's, that's a stain. There's something about it that tells us this, this isn't as it should be. It, it's, uh, and it's made all the worse by the fact that it's a white rug and there's no hiding it. It's a white rug with a stain that in all likelihood is a permanent stain. This is bothersome. It's unsettling because it runs contrary to the way that we were designed. It represents something broken. It represents two things that that should not be mixed. You and I have a sinful nature, and our sinful nature cannot mix with something not sinful. It it would stain it, as it were. But, But it's not just that we can't add sin to something not sinful. It's not just not sinful. It's holy that we're trying to mix here. The unholy with the The holy, but it's not just holy, it's holy, holy, holy. We're separated that far from God. When Isaiah was exposed to the holy, holy, holy nature of God, which again, let me remind you, is Jesus. But even even as he's he's there in the presence of, of the Lord... Uh, it, it, the glory is just too radiant for him to bear. And what does he say? Verse five, and I said, woe is me for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Look, look what Isaiah says, woe is me. That's not, that's not just Isaiah saying, oh darn, <laughs> oh, sa- I'm sad. But when he says, woe is me, he's calling a curse down upon himself. He's cursing himself. It's almost as if he's saying, I, I don't deserve to live. And that's the reaction of Isaiah, prophet of God, probably a pretty good guy. I mean, if you're called to the office of prophet, you'd have to be a pretty righteous guy, I would think. But even someone with those credentials in the presence of the, of the glory of the Lord says, curse me. How far separated are we? That far. It, it's a chasm. It's a chasm. Okay, with, so with just a, a few minutes that we have left, we're running out of time How do we make ourselves holy like God? As much as we we understand maybe the gap that exists between us, but then how do we then, when he says, be holy for I am holy, how do we do that? Can we make ourselves holy? That's a a softball question there. That's a lob. Can we make ourselves in and of ourselves holy? Can't do it. Can't do it. Verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal, that he had taken, he'd taken with tongs from the altar and he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. How does it happen? Our only prayer, our only hope is if he takes away our guilt. He atones for our sin. Our only shot is if he n- not only takes away our sin, remember, I've said this to you before, it's not enough just to have to not have sin but you also have to be what righteous you can't just be sinless but you have to be sinless and righteous too that's what Jesus was that's why Jesus I I like to say this a lot that's why Jesus didn't show up on Good Friday was crucified as the son of God and then our sins atoned for because he had to live a life of righteousness too to, to, to earn God's favor it's not just enough to be sinless but you have to be righteous too and, and, uh, and this, is, this is what Paul is talking about uh, when he tells the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 5.21, really digest this. Listen to what he's saying. Jesus doesn't just take away your guilt, but he closed the chasm between unholiness and, and holy, holy, holiness. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 5.21, for his sake, he made him to be sin, He took on our sin, right? This is where we find forgiveness. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. He's holy, holy, holy. He knew no sin and gave us his right standing to us. Why? And it says this in 1 Corinthians 5.20, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, so that we might be holy, so that we might be set apart as he is. And again, that's the, that's the standard that he set way way back in Leviticus 20 and, and other places. It's not, a, it's not enough to just be pretty good. It's not even enough to be holy, <laughs> Holy, holy, holy is what, what the Lord is. And how do, how do we dare jump across that chasm and, and be in this? Well, it has to come from, from Jesus himself. It has to come from God himself. That's the only way that can happen is if he does it for us. So that's the only reason you can approach God in any way, shape, or form. Because, because you're not kind to of holy. You're not kind to of set apart. You know That won't do it. But because you carry with you, you believe in Jesus, you carry with you the righteousness of Christ. You carry with you the holiness of Christ. And that's what makes you acceptable in his sight. So let me stop right there and see what other comments or questions you have. We maybe have about five minutes, unless you got to hustle to the, to the late service. That starts in about 11 minutes. So any comments or questions that we can address or... Yes, sir. Can we... One thing that... Yeah. Jody's trying to, for those of you listening to the recording, I do post these, by the way, so if you miss one, you can catch up, but Jody's trying to make a, a connection between fear of the Lord, uh, which the Bible also calls wisdom, the beginning of wisdom, the fear of the Lord, and that holiness, which I think you're right, which is why I wanted to start with this topic today, because like I said, literally, if you don't understand that, if you don't understand that, that chasm that we're talking about, if you don't have that healthy fear of, of what you're dealing with here, then it, it really affects everything else, it, you know, the the... Uh, I, I've seen um, you know things online that, are, that would just make you gasp. I think if, if, uh, if you'll really understand the nature of Christ and what He was here to do, uh, I saw someone post online that uh, yeah Jesus was a good example for us. He confessed his sins, therefore we should confess ours. Whoa, whoa, whoa! <laughs> no, it said so Jesus has to be sinless, and again not just sinless, but He's but He's holy too. And so if you just relegate Jesus to being well just kind of someone like us, that doesn't cut it. That doesn't cut it for us to be in the presence of God, and so literally the whole—if that's your—if what you're coming in with, the whole system falls apart because you don't—we don't have a good grasp on, on really how far holy that we're talking about here. Yeah, very good point. Very good point. Someone else comment, Todd? Yes. RC saying that book, he's talking about the Moses and the rock. If you want to see the glory of God in your life, to share the gospel with others, you see just the glimpse of the back of the Lord. Yeah. Goes that person. That's all we. Yeah. Share the gospel. If you want to see the Lord? You want to see the backup? If you want, yeah. If, if you, you want, know, if you want to see best to best the best Lord, true. yeah, yeah. Oh, what a great. Yeah. Again, if you haven't read that book, Holiness of God, it's such a fantastic book, and I think it'll really maybe uh, help solidify uh, some of the concepts that we've just brushed over today. Yeah. Did you have a comment? Yeah. Huh. I think it's interesting how we humans lower that bar. You know, I like yeah. to watch these things on YouTube where it's like people witnessing to other people. Like the first question to ask them is, you know, do you think you're a good person? And almost across the board everybody's loaded bar solo and they're like, yeah, yeah, I'm a pretty good person. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. And it only emphasizing the fact of where we start today because I think generally generally speaking, that's where people start out with, Yeah, I'm pretty good. I'm a pretty good person. And what's the next thing they say? I've never killed anybody. <laughs> that's, how, that's how far we've lowered the bar, as you, as you just mentioned. You know, that, inevitably, that's what they say. Well, yeah, I'm not like that bad. But, but again, see how, how we're trying to lower the bar and put God on, on sort of a level that we are? We're like, well, that's, that's, you just have to be pretty good to be able to. What the scriptures are telling us here is nope. <laughs> and I love the fact that, that even Jesus, when he, when he came uh, in Matthew 5 and following, where he's starting to reiterate that he's, he's recapitulating the law. He's doubling down on it. He's not saying, well, maybe we overstated it. But even go so far as to say, no, even if you've, if you've thought in your heart about this, th- then it's just as bad as if you'd actually done it. You're, you're, you're that far removed. You're that far separated. You need someone, which, by the way, that whole speech, the Sermon on the Mount, ends with, the wise man built his house upon the rock. That's the answer. That's the period. To everything that Jesus recapitulates in the law and the Sermon on the Mount. Build your house on the rock. Build your house on the rock. We were just talking about that, too. He hides my soul at the back of the rock. It all comes back to Jesus, the rock. If, if, if you want to build your house, if you want to be able to have this kind of foundation, it has to be done so. Build it on the rock of Jesus Christ. That's the period. To everything that Matt, that was brought up in the Sermon on the Mount. I love it. Ah, word of God, it's so good. Someone else? Great stuff. Great questions. Hey, come back next week and on your way out, please get a donut to go. And those of you listening on the recording, if you're not here, you're not getting coffee and donuts. So let me pray for us and then we'll be dismissed. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your holiness. And we thank you that, uh, oh my my goodness, that uh, it's not something that we can just casually approach, uh, but we need the righteousness of Christ to get us there. And thank you that you have made that provision for us. Uh, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of, of God, and we thank you for that miracle. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Have a great day.